All right, good evening, everyone. I can have your attention. Um, my name is Kapil Nayer. I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, I've been in the field of counseling in some sort of fashion for the past eight or nine years or so. Um, my focus has been in the addiction realm, um, and I'm here today to talk to you about the neurobiology of addiction. Um, before I begin, a little background information with regards to perspectives on addiction. Um, there are many different perspectives on addiction. Uh, one of them is a genetic perspective that kind of discusses how the precursors of our genes kind of result in um, what could potentially result in addiction. Uh, so that basically means that two individuals had an affliction with addiction and they had a progeny. Uh, that progeny would then have a higher propensity to develop addiction. That's one uh, framework and one perspective. Another was uh, the behavioristic approach. So if, uh, you know, you're surrounding, if one person is surrounding themselves with a bunch of people that are indulging in a specific substance or a specific affliction, repetitive pattern of behavior, that individual will then have a higher propensity of developing that one specific behavior based off of what they're surrounded with, kind of the nature-nurture ideology of nature. Um, the third perspective would be the psychological perspective. So an individual develops a pattern of behavior, repetitive pattern of behavior based off of a specific trauma or specific mental health illness. And they develop a pattern of coping based off of this one specific thing. Um, and that coping strategy happens to be an affliction that they then use to cope with. Um, it's my vantage point that the, the crux of all of those specific types of models is neuroplasticity, um, which is something that this lecture is all about. Um, and I plan on kind of delivering that framework, and that's my personal perspective on the entire thing. Um, so that's kind of a warning label. <laughs> Um, so before we begin, I just want to briefly review kind of the neuroanatomy, um, the anatomy of the brain. Your brain is pretty much broken down into specific uh, sections, um, portions. So the first portion that we're going to look at is your frontal lobe. Your frontal lobe sits anterior, and it is responsible for judgment, reasoning, motor movement, inhibition. It also has a lot to do with your moral reasoning. Um, and this is a lobe that gets very tainted if one is to indulge in, say, alcohol. Sort of more anterior uh, to your frontal lobe is your prefrontal lobe. Your prefrontal lobe is responsible for your pre-thought or your pre-motor function. So whatever I'm thinking next and organizing next, and if I was moving around, my next motor movement would then be organized by my prefrontal lobe. It would then communicate with my frontal lobe to actually make it into an action or make it into a fluid thought. Your parietal lobe. Your parietal lobe sits kind of posterior to your frontal lobe. Parietal lobe is mainly responsible for spatial relation and depth perception. So I have an awareness that this podium sits before all of you based off of my specific parietal lobe. I can make sense of that. Your temporal lobe sits kind of beneath your parietal lobe. Your temporal lobe is mainly involved with memory, balance, hearing. Uh, there's two main receptors in this one specific lobe. Those are your GABA-A and GABA-B receptors. They're very significant when it comes to discussion about sedation or anxiolytics. Um, alcohol typically binds to those two specific receptors, and we'll get into that as well. 
Your temporal lobe also houses two specific linguistic centers. Uh, one is your Broca's area, which is it's its anterior, and it's uh, making your motor movement, so being able to fluidly, actively speak. Um, sort of posterior is your Wernicke's area. Your Wernicke's area is all about comprehension and creating sentences. Um, so the next sentence or the next thought that I'm about to start creating is all being organized um, in a fluid fashion by my Wernicke's. It's communicating through an arcuate fasciculus to my Broca's to then be able to deliver and communicate everything to you now. Posterior to everything is your occipital lobe. Your occipital lobe is mainly responsible for vision <coughs> and computing everything that we're actively seeing. Beneath all of that is your cerebellum. Your cerebellum is mainly focused on balance and motor control. So those are pretty much the general areas of um, our brain. And we're going to go in depth with regards to aspects of how they're influenced by neurochemistry. So when it comes to neurochemistry, there's two specific main neurochemical pathways that are involved with most substances, most afflictions. Um, those two are your serotonin and dopamine pathways. Serotonin is a major neurochemical that's specifically involved in your mood regulation. It has a lot to do with depression scales, anxiety scales, and fluctuations between the two. Dopamine cardinally is your feel-good neurochemical. Um, dopamine, as we can see on this right slide, um, is your feel-good neurochemical. Um, typically, if we eat a piece of chocolate, A, chocolate tastes good, B, we're activating your dopaminergic spike, um, which is a cascade that causes for us to get this reward out of eating chocolate. Both of these have a common origin, and we're going to talk about that in the next slide. So your serotonin and dopamine kind of overlap in this one specific region in your brain. It happens to be kind of centralized in your brain, and um, it's known as your mesolimbic region. It communicates with your ventral tegmental uh, area, and in conjunction, creates what's known as your reward pathway. As you can see, uh, dopamine and serotonin uh, would be, dopamine is your blue, serotonin is your red. They both cardinally go to your frontal lobe, and then disperse, well, serotonin disperses throughout the rest of your brain. This slide kind of depicts more in detail with regards to the responsibilities of each respective neurochemical. So dopamine and histamine, as you can see, is responsible for cog cognition, mental alertness, working memory, clarity, motivation. Norepinephrine and acetylcholine are two sympathetic um, neurochemicals. They're also involved in recall memory, perseverance. You also have glutamate and serotonin which are involved in perception. And as I mentioned before, serotonin is your main neurochemical that's involved in mood regulation, typically with anxiety, um, <coughs> sadness, and fluctuation between the two. What's key about this slide is it kind of uh, gives you a clear understanding of how more than one neurochemical can have an influence on a specific type of cognitive ability. So if you look at this, it says that dopamine and histamine, along with norepinephrine and acetylcholine, both have an effect on your attention. So an example would be someone that was diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. They have a fluctuation with dopamine. They may have a fluctuation with norepinephrine. 
They may have a fluctuation with both, creating symptoms that would inhibit one's attention. Similarly, uh, serotonin and dopamine have a large impact on appetite. Um, the technical jargon that they use is uh, the satiety center. Uh, so if you have a fluctuation in serotonin, maybe even dopamine, you might have an effect with your appetite. So another example would be if someone was depressed, um, either their serotonin would be too low, their dopamine would be too low, causing for either an increase or decrease in appetite. And that's typically a cardinal symptom that you see with people that are depressed. They're either going to have weight gain or weight loss. <coughs> Intuition happens to be um, affiliated with norepinephrine, serotonin, and glutamate as well. Um, and centralized to all of this, it's really hard to see that because it's in white, um, but is mood. So the interaction of dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, if there's fluctuations in any variable of all three, um, you might have a disturbance with your mood. So your body's reaction to drugs and alcohol. When it comes to nicotine, um, nicotine happens to be one of the most abundant neurochemical receptor in your brain. Um, the neurons in one's brain, they say, emulate the amount of stars that are in the sky, including alternate galaxies. So that's a quite a bit amount. If you look more closely, um, we all know the cardinal effects of nicotine causes cancer for one. For two, you're increasing your vasoconstriction, you're increasing your heart rate. Um, it affects multiple organs, lungs, uh, your heart, your endocrine system. Um, but neurochemically, we can see that in a, using, by using a PET scan, what's typically called a PET scan, um, a PET scan is a, a, a ultraviolet light that's pretty much shining on one skull, and um, it gives you a response. And with that response, you can kind of cardinally tell which regions of a brain are amplified and which are healthily functioning and which are not as much. So if we look at this one specific PET scan, that ultraviolet beam is basically giving you these results. The results would show the amount of health, if you will, of each respective region. So they say that the higher concentration, the higher functioning regions would be highlighted in red. That which is highlighted in yellow would be a little less functioning. That which is highlighted in green would be lesser functioning, but still active. Uh, so for a healthy non-smoker, you can see that using this PET scan, almost every single region of the brain is highly active and functioning. As we talked about earlier, the mesolimbic region, which is this highlighted region in red, is highly active, which means that serotonin and dopamine are highly being secreted and that is basically your baseline. That's homeostasis. That's typically a healthy individual. If you com compare it to this individual on the left, who happens to be a smoker, you can see that regions of the brain are not as amplified. Your mesolimbic region isn't as amplified either. And this is indicative of an individual that's been smoking for a long period of time. Now, why is this the case? For an individual that's smoking cigarettes, cigarettes typically are a sympathetic response um, type of drug, and uh, it would sit in the stimulant category. And so what would happen is, is that if you, would to, if you were to compare this to, say, an IV drip from the hospital perspective, 
if one wants to go to the hospital and be hooked up to an IV machine, um, an IV drip would come out at a dripped fixed interval rate. That IV drip is hooked up to a computer, and that computer is basically deducing how much an individual is clearing versus how much that person can actively take in. So you're constantly having what's called homeostasis, baseline. If you think about neurons and neurochemicals the same exact fashion, each respective neuron is on a fixed interval rate, secreting a specific neurochemical, creating a cascade going to the next one. That is fixed rhythm, and it's, that's what's causing and providing for baseline. That's what's creating homeostasis. If one is to indulge in a specific substance, in this case, cigarettes, that, mean that, that means that that fixed interval rate gets disrupted. And in the case of cigarettes, if there was a valve affiliated with this analogy that we're using, that valve would just stay open, causing for flushing, flooding. So that just means that an individual that has dopamine or serotonin that no, would technically no longer have readily available stores of that because they're using this one specific substance, which would then look like this on the PET scan that would look <coughs> depleted. And that person would experience symptoms of, could be anything, it could be depression, it could be anxiety. And there's a cross-correlation between this exact analogy and people that do smoke. Um, individuals that do smoke, if they don't have a cigarette, their first cardinal reaction is to get irritable. Um, side effect of that is also depression and anxiety. When it comes to alcohol, Alcohol, as it stands alone, is a depressant. Um, when it infiltrates your body, it happens to be the most deadly uh, due to the fact that it, it affects every single region of the brain. Um, it also affects every single cell in your body. Um, when it comes to alcohol, uh, if we think about media, for example, an individual sitting down and having a drink, what's the first thing that typically goes as far as cardinal cognitive functioning? Does anyone know? It's speech, typically. So in the movies or in, in TV shows, um, if an individual is having a drink or two drinks, the first thing that you start, one could notice is that that individual will start slurring their speech. And that's because, as I mentioned before, when we were talking about the temporal lobe, you have these two specific receptors, it's GABA A and GABA B, that happen to be habitating your temporal lobe. Your temporal lobe also has your linguistic centers, as I mentioned before, your Broca's and Wernicke's area, which are all about being able to comprehend things and actively create sentences and then deliver them. If that lobe of your brain or someone's brain gets flooded with alcohol, it's not going to be cognitively able to, you know, it's going to be cognitively impaired. It's not going to be functioning as, as it readily could be. In that instance, um, you know, you're going to see things like slurred speech. You might see an individual not being able to comprehend things. Um, and then when we look at other lobes of the brain, um, for example, your frontal lobe, an individual that is using large amounts of alcohol may actually start doing things that they normally typically wouldn't agree with if they were sober. So you have phenomena of disinhibition, um, lack of judgment, lack of moral reasoning, and that is a common thread with regards to alcohol. Another feature of alcohol would be um, your occipital lobe. An individual's occipital lobe would provide for blurred vision if it was infiltrated with alcohol as well. Um, your parietal lobe as well, 
would be affected by alcohol consumption um, due to depth perception and spatial relations being compromised with alcohol consumption. This is a large component of operating vehicles and why it's not a good idea to operate a vehicle while drinking alcohol. Neurochemically, another thing to talk about is um, your cascades of dopamine and serotonin get uh, affected dramatically when consumption is present. Uh, those specific mesolimbic regions get um, flooded by alcohol as well, and you're not having as much readily available serotonin or dopamine um, released. It slows the entire process down, which is a precursor for um, the hangover effect, if you will. So the following day, all this toxin that comes into one system is then trying to be processed out. So our body is now slowing down, trying to get rid of all the substances. Does that make sense to everyone? When it comes to marijuana, um, so marijuana affects the body. I apologize for the slide being dark like that. Um, so typically, an individual that was indulging in marijuana would see reddening of their eyes, increased or sorry, decreased intraocular pressure, dryness of the mouth, um, sensitivity to heat and cold, an increase in heart rate, and muscle relaxation. Now, marijuana seems to be a hot topic these days um, on the cusp of uh, decriminalization of marijuana. Um, and so we should probably discuss um, the intricacies of that. So marijuana as it stands, if, if one were to purchase marijuana on the street, uh, the percentage concentration of THC, that which gets us high in marijuana, is somewhere between 5 and 13%. The rest of that percentage is pretty much a wash. It's nothing therapeutic, it's nothing organic for one system. When it comes to all of these medical clinics that are synthesizing and all these um, can marijuana, um, I don't know if they're farms, I guess they are, um, that, that they're talking about in Colorado, Oregon, some parts of LA and California, um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to reverse the ratios that exist in marijuana. So, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, if someone were to purchase marijuana from the street right now, it's somewhere between 5 and 13% THC. Uh, the rest of it is a wash. And what these farms are pretty much trying to do is enhance the amount of cannabinoid that is present within marijuana. And so what they're trying to do is reverse the ratios to an effect of creating a 99% cannabinoid th uh, marijuana strain with 1% THC. The reason why they're trying to do that is because most of the research is now indicating that it's the cannabinoid uh, derivative of marijuana that provides a lot of the therapeutic effect. So right now in Germany, there's um, a clinic that's treating stage four metastatic cancer survivors. And uh, what they're doing is they're treating them with marijuana that is high-grade cannabinoid, low-grade THC, and they're finding results in that. Individuals are now complaining of or reporting uh, remission and decrease in um, psychosomatic effect. So they're not really seeing any type of depression, anxiety scales from this high-grade cannabinoid, low-grade THC marijuana. And they're not getting high. So that's where we are in the stage of things.
Now, the common motif is uh, because of media, I mean, I'm going to blame media, um, is that uh, the higher grade THC marijuana, the better it is. Um, and there was a study that was done discussing how an individual that's using high grade marijuana um, would then go through a PET scan. And they were comparing and contrasting it in this one specific study with an individual that was actively schizophrenic. And so if you think about high-grade marijuana or marijuana in general, some of the cardinal features that people experience when they smoke marijuana would be auditory and visual hallucinations, maybe. Sometimes even paranoia. They see things that aren't there. They hear things that aren't there. Sometimes they fear that the police are coming after them or they're going to get caught or God knows what else. Um, and if you compare that to someone that is actively schizophrenic, a schizophrenic person would probably visually see things, auditorily hear things, or maybe even have heightened senses of paranoia. So when they did this study, they conducted um, PET scans on these individuals and they cross-compared them, and it turns out that there were exact images of each other. And that mesolimbic region that we talked about in previous slides, the origin, the hub, for both dopamine and serotonin were kind of dimly lit or off in both instances for both an active high-grade THC marijuana user and an active schizophrenic. And that was kind of the basis of the story, of the research, rather. The conclusion of that was pretty much just talking about how high-grade marijuana, though media may portray it to be something of greater value, um, may actually be an experimentation with what it's like to be actively schizophrenic. When it comes to stimulants, stimulants would be cocaine, amphetamine, uh, methamphetamine, Adderall, Vyvanse. Um, all of these drugs kind of work in the same mannerisms. There's a recent study that was through, that was being done talking about how Adderall and methamphetamine are a lot more similar in nature than previously expected. Um, and the typical psychological effects are insomnia, paranoia, um, decreased appetite, increased alertness, irritability, sometimes you can have slurred speech, dizziness, confusion, hallucinations. You can also get panic attacks from it, increased amounts of anxiety, and also depression from it. You get vasoconstriction, high blood pressure, dry mouth. Um, so there's a plethora of adverse side effects. If you look neurochemically, again with these PET scans, a normal individual in this region that we're naming the mesolimbic region, directly in the center of your brain, shows high activity and high creation and synthesis of uh, norepinephrine and dopamine. If you look at someone that has been using a very potent substance like methamphetamine, a PET scan would show dramatic decreases in creation and synthesis of norepinephrine and dopamine because, like I said before, that IV drip, the valve would then be open and where there's supposed to be readable store, readily available stores of dopamine and norepinephrine are no more. And so that is why it looks like that and the adverse effects of that are what causes the external manifestations that we would call anxiety, panic attacks, depression, irritability, uh, things of that nature. 
sort of the metaphor that I use when I talk about stimulants has always been, uh, if you think about Manhattan, and you think about all the light bulbs in Manhattan, and every single one of those bulbs are off, and they've been off for some time, and then you throw a large surge of electricity through all of Manhattan, and that surge of electricity hits every single bulb. Some of the bulbs are going to burst, some of them are going to fuse, the rest are going to stay on for a prolonged period of time, even when they want to turn off. That essentially is the equivalent of what would happen if one were to use an amphetamine, except that happens with your neuron. So every single neuron is going to stay on for a long period of time, and they're going to further have that sympathetic response, even if that individual wants to go to sleep, they won't be able to sleep. Um, so a lot of movies right now are talking about methamphetamine, cocaine. Um, I'm watching a lot of Narcos right now, and that's kind of like the theme of that whole show. But um, for everything that's depicted in media with regards to stimulant use, the cardinal reactions typically are prolonged amounts of wakefulness, so they're staying up for long periods of time, decreased um, appetite, so they lose a whole bunch of weight. Um, typically with methamphetamine users, they look emaciated, they look like skin and bones pretty much. And um, all of that is indicative and cardinal of exactly how your brain is responding to all these chemicals that we're putting into our body. Dopamine's happy point, its homeostatic baseline point that it likes to be at, is um, at 100. It's typically around 100. So if you were supposed to take, um, so if someone was to be taking a specific stimulant that is um, pharmaceutically driven, like an Adderall or a Vyvanse, um, that individual would experience a sharp increase, as this graph kind of shows with regards to the dopamine and norepinephrine being released. And the benefit of pharmaceuticals is you know exactly what's in it. So therefore, when that, that specific chemical is being processed through your system, you're coming down at a fixed interval rate. And that fixed interval rate inhibits the potential to develop any type of adverse psychosomatic effect, such as depression, irritability, anxiety. This graph on the right kind of depicts another aspect to this. So if your happy point is 100, and one were to use a specific substance from the street, i.e. cocaine, methamphetamine, you would see a spike that would not be in a fixed interval rate, and a come down that is not on a fixed interval rate. And that is exactly what provokes an adverse effect where you see psychosomatic symptoms of depression, irritability, and anger. Does that make sense, everyone? When it comes to opiates, opiates um, happen to be a pretty traumatic uh, epidemic right now. Um, aside from being extremely addictive, uh, they have devastating effects with a lot of or, um, organs in your body. And the story of heroin pretty much, um, heroin came about after World War II, a company named Bayer is actually the company that created it. And it was mass-produced and vended and provided on shelves of most dispensaries throughout Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, people were taking it as prescribed. And it was basically vended just as Tylenol or acetaminophen would be sold at a CVS or Target. 
And um, what eventually started happening was people started catching wind that people were getting addicted to it and abusing it and getting high off of it. So then Bayer decided that they were going to stop producing it altogether. After that occurred, most pharmaceutical industry companies figured out that there were, say, eight specific analogy-oil drugs, say, eight specific Lego blocks together would then be what heroin actually is, right? Most pharmaceutical companies, what they did was they would separate the eight building blocks and mass-produce all eight separate building blocks. People caught wind of all eight building blocks, would buy them in bulk, and then they started playing Breaking Bad, if you will, in their basements. And that is essentially what the phenomenon of the opiate epidemic is right now. So if you think about it, every single person that is dealing drugs is pretty much creating a mixture of whatever they get with whatever they have, right? So you have this phenomenon of not knowing anything about what is actually being vended, nor what the starting origin is. And now we're trying to contain this, this mess, hodgepodge, of all these chemicals all at the same time. Does that make sense? So heroin as it acts, it binds to serotonin directly. Our body has three specific serotonin receptor types. You have serotonin 1, 2, and 3. Now, if an opiate binds to two of these three receptors, you can have varying results. So I typically give this lecture to like a room full of addicts. And when I do that, I ask questions like, how many people in the room would identify with having a specific reaction to taking an opiate. My first example would be, how many people in the room would feel as though they would fall asleep, nod out, not be able to function, not be able to do anything? 75% of the room would raise their hands, right? If I ask the opposite of that question, how many people in the room would identify with, after using opiates, you'd be able to clean your house, do whatever you have to do, get errands done, be active, be social, blah, blah, blah. Maybe 60% of the room would raise their hand. Then I would ask the third question, how many people in the room would have both responses or experience both responses when they use an opiate? Maybe 60% of the room would raise their hand. And that just goes to show you that if it's something that's pharmaceutical, maybe we'd have an expected, anticipated result. If it's something from the street, it's variable. We have no idea how that person's going to react to that drug because we don't know what's in it. And um, additional to that, we don't readily know how much serotonin we have in our body. So if I asked you the question, how much serotonin do you have in your system, would you be able to tell me? Transitively, if I asked you the same question with regards to norepinephrine or dopamine, we have no idea. So we don't know what our X variable is. Then transitively, if we ask how much active ingredient opiate or active ingredient, I don't know, stimulant is in cocaine or whatever, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily be able to say exactly how much is in it because that's your Y variable, right? And so now we're in the stage where we don't know our X, we don't know our Y, and now we're trying to predict and contain our Z variable from the medley of all three. Does that make sense to everyone? So when it comes to neuroplasticity, the story all begins with our genes. Your genes are the blueprint for everything in your body. So that's protein, receptors, your neurochemicals, everything. You have two specific phenomena that exist from your genes. 
you have upregulation, which is a phenomenon of meeting the demands of my body. So if an individual is doing the same repetitive behavior over and over and over again, that means that the genes responding to the receptors, responding to those behaviors, can get amplified and magnified, right? So that's the process known as upregulation. The opposite is also true. So if I stop doing a specific behavior, then the genes, receptors, proteins, everything involved with that specific behavior break down, and it goes to the next demand that my body needs. So I gave this example early, I'll give it again. If I took Spanish for eight years straight, and then after that eighth year, I never spoke a lick of a Spanish for 10 years straight, and I went to try and speak Spanish all over again, I'm not going to have that same ability, will I? That kind of is a nutshell example that I'll probably give again when we talk about neuroplasticity directly. Um, so an application to real life. One of my buddies, Jason, he was a varsity wrestler at my high school. He and I were very good friends. And um, he went to uh, West Point and then um, was deployed and went to Afghanistan and came back. And when he came back, he called me up and he said, hey, I want to go on this next venture. I'm going to start bodybuilding and get into a magazine just because I want to, right? So he's, he starts talking to me and he starts asking me things about what he should do. So I had a conversation with him about nutrition. I had a conversation with him about going to the gym and doing the same exact repetitive behaviors over and over and over again to get the results that he wanted so that he could be successful as a bodybuilder. So Jason did as I said. I said. He started increasing his nutrient intake, going to the gym, did the same exact repetitive behaviors over and over and over at the gym, and he focused solely on his upper body. So after six months, nine months or so, he, st he calls me up, and he says, you know, I did everything you asked. I'm having phenomenal results. My upper body looks great, but what I'm noticing is that my legs are starting to look like chicken legs. So I have this big upper torso, but my legs aren't looking good at all. What's going on here? So then I started explaining him this phenomenon of downregulation. And I talked to him about all of the genes, all of the protein, all of the receptors, all of the amino acids, the essential building blocks for your lower limb. There was no demand there because you weren't working out. They all went to your upper torso. And that's where you got hypertrophy and you got the results that you wanted. So next time you go to the gym, start doing repetitive behaviors on your lower limb alongside of the upper body and you'll have the results that you want, right? Makes sense. So he did as I said, and eventually he found success and he was in Men's Health magazine and great results for him. So an application to the brain as we understand it, your brain is pretty much a giant electrical circuit. And you have those two same exact phenomenon in your brain. And this is a core element to how neuroplasticity kind of works. So in your body we call it hypertrophy, in your brain we call it myelination. Uh, so just as every electrical circuit, you want to increase their conductivity. Your brain has the ability to myelinate specific regions, pathways, to make them more enhanced and work faster. So basically, if I do the same repetitive behavior over and over and over again, for example, this lecture, right? That means each successive time that I give this lecture, it's going to get better and better and better, hopefully. <laughs> 
And my brain will work faster and faster and faster each successive time to think of points that I want to make, right? Um, and that's what's happening in a brain, right? The opposite is also true, and that kind of hits back to the point that I made earlier. If I practice Spanish every single day, that means that pattern of behavior, that practice, is going to get enhanced, it's going to get myelinated, it's going to be easy for me to be able to speak Spanish. If I stop speaking Spanish for 10 years, and then I go to try to speak Spanish, that means those neurons that are encoding for that entire pathway may not be enhanced anymore. It's going to get downregulated from the 10-year stint that I didn't do any practice of, of Spanish. Does that make sense, everyone? So it's going to be harder for me to recall. So you have this phenomenon known as neural pruning, which is transitively parallel to downregulation. So the psychology textbooks pretty much try and tie in cravings, urges, and emotions. Your craving is a very strong desire to do something. And neurobiologically, the parallel I'll make is, if I was four years old, and the first time, first time I ever interacted with a chair was when I was four years of age. That means that every single time that I ever experienced a chair throughout my entire existence, as I grew up, I would be reliving that experience that I had when I was four. Does that make sense? On a conscious or subconscious level. Now say hypothetically I, I stubbed my toe on that chair when I was four years of age. And as I grew up, every single time I experienced a chair, I was also I was experiencing that chair, but at the same time I was subconsciously or consciously also experiencing the pain of stubbing my toe on that chair. Right? That would maybe mean that at 34 years of age, I would then look at a chair, feel that pain, and maybe potentially be fearful of chairs, right? <laughs> it's silly, but that's kind of how our neurochemistry works, right? So if you think about the normal modern-day addict, all of the sensations they were experiencing before their first use, all of the things that they may be traumatized by before their first use or in the moment as they're actively using are getting reinforced each successive time that they pick up, right? So that means neurobiologically, that could be the origin of why it's so difficult to break that habit, which would then transitively go into the genetic perspective. It would transitively go into the behavioristic perspective. It would go into the psychological perspective. Does that make sense? An urge. An urge is to serve as motive or reason for. So psychologically, an urge is when we get fixated off of it. So this fits in with an OCD model perspective of addiction. Um, so when the DSM-5 came out, Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the fifth edition came out, um, right before uh, the members of the APA were having this roundtable discussion as to where to fit in because addiction was actually on the table of discussion to be implemented in as a mental illness. Um, and it was going to sit in line with OCD. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a fixation off of an initial craving to do this one specific behavior over and over and over again. And that's psychologically where addiction kind of sits. There is a communication point between 
an urge and a craving. And that's said to be your emotion. Um, so just as that chair example is, I can have an experience, I can psychologically have a response of being fearful of chairs. That emotion is what holds it together. And if I continue to hold on to that emotion of fear, then I'm forever going to be fearful of chairs. This is very similar to an addict that feels like there's nothing else to do but to cope with this one specific thing, this one specific emotion through use. Does that make sense? So this is a point that I kind of came up with. There's no evidence backing this one, so just warning. Um, so epigenetics. Epigenetics is a term that basically looks at your genes, and it looks at a, a group of people and analyzes how what can happen in one specific generation may have impact in future generations. So more specifically, in 1845 to 1852, there's an Irish famine in Ireland. No crop was able to be cultivated. There was massive starvation, massive hunger. Um, whole communities of people were wiped out. Three generations later, uh, there was a phenomenon of women that were able to get pregnant, but the baby would either die in utero, or the baby would be born, but not be able to live past the age of one, because it wasn't able to sustain nutrients. So they came up with this term from this initial study of epigenetics. So if we look and try and apply that to today, and we think about the epidemic of addiction, and how cardinally right now, in today's time, the average age for an addict is between 18 and 37, I think one of the reports were. And we think about the 70s, and how it was all love, sex, rock and roll, and the hippie movement, and a lot of hallucinogen use. There could be an epigenetic correlation between what happened in the 70s and today. I used to work in a drug and alcohol rehab, and I think our age range was 18 to 32. Um, and that was an outcome study. Majority of that population was addicted to heroin. They all had parents that were part of the hippie movement that admittedly would be using marijuana and you know, other hallucinogens. So is there a correlation? Don't really know. Maybe, maybe not. So this doesn't apply to you. So we have ample amount of time for questions. Do you guys have any questions? It can absolutely be addictive. Everything can be addictive. That's a great question. Sorry, repeating the question. Can marijuana be addictive? Um, that was a question, right? Yeah. Yes, it absolutely can. And more, more and more research is being done. It's a phenomenal question. More and more research is being done talking about that specific mesolimbic region and the reward pathway and how literally anything at this modern day and age can become addictive. And if you look at the specific serotonergic and dopaminergic regions of the brain um, and the pattern of behavior, any aspect of that pattern of behavior can become addictive. So more specifically, um, so working in treatment, a lot of people will come in and tell me things about how the hardest part about being an addict is the ritualistic behavior that they get afflicted with. 
So for the opiate user, part of the ritual of the setup, of doing what they do with opiates, you know, as seen in movies, putting everything in a syringe, injecting it within them, I mean, all of those are romanticized and hyper-enhanced, and there's a reward pathway affiliated with each one of those acts, acts that makes it more addictive. And the same phenomenon holds true with cannabis use. Um, I've had clients directly tell me that they're addicted to cannabis because of the whole art of rolling, for example. Literally just setting everything up, not even in, indulging in it. Um, sometimes people are experiencing that type of high, that type of euphoria from just the actions, than actually indulging in it. Um, so yes. So I just want to follow up to mm -hmm. that question. So would you say that high, like you mentioned, the farms are trying to decrease the THC and increase the cannabinoid. So would that pre prevent the addictive side, or would that not affect it because it's ritualistic as you said? More than likely, that's going to inhibit any type of high. So there's not as much euphoria experienced from any of that. So because that mesolimbic region is not being enhanced or affected in any way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. there's less inclination that that could become an addictive pattern of behavior. Because as said, the cannabinoids are not getting enough. There's no change in any alteration of state, neurochemically, or physiologically, or psychosomatically. There's no change happening whatsoever. In fact, what's that? What is it in them? What, cannabinoids? What they're finding is that the evidence is now showing that it has the ability to reduce anxiety levels. For some reason, that's still being researched. It also has the ability to decrease depression. Somehow, I don't know how either. Research is being done about that. And then it also has propensity to reduce and um, uh, for, for specific things like appetite, appetite and satiety. Uh, it has the ability to increase appetite and uh, help and assist with remission of cancer. Um, and that's what the research right now is all about. Just trying to figure out how that works. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Hi, I have a question about um, the link between schizophrenia and marijuana. Sure. So if someone like had a family history of schizophrenia mm -hmm. and then like regularly like smoked marijuana as like a young adult, do you think that could lead to like an increased chance of being diagnosed with schizophrenia or like have an increased system? There's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the question was, um, if, if someone had a family history of schizophrenia and then they decided to use, say, specifically high-grade THC marijuana, would that increase the likelihood of de developing schizophrenia or not, right? That's basically yeah. the question. Yeah. And evidence is pretty much indicating that, yes, it, it can have an impact on uh, developing early-onset schizophrenia. Um, that's what... You know, recent articles that have been published, articles that have been published in the past are saying very similar things. Um, it can increase the propensity of developing it, but that also depends on like the strain and how much active THC marijuana is actually in it. Um, but yeah, that's actually a phenomenon that can happen. And similar things are being said about um, Parkinson's because there's a, there's a large correlation with dopamine. If you have too much dopamine, you can have schizophrenia. Um, I think it's uh, too less serotonin, you can develop things like early onset Parkinson's. Marijuana is one of those that, depending on the strain, depending on the concentration of THC, can have an effect and impact on both serotonin and dopamine, so you can have varying results of both. This is kind of dangerous. Go ahead. Yeah, something, um, I don't know, I read something online, it might not be true because it was online, but um, that they were treating Parkinson's 
So some strains, yeah. So this is where it gets really tricky is because they're trying to figure out exactly what percentage of what would be therapeutic for what specific disorder, mental health, or physiologic, right? So right now what's happening is, is that they're seeing a large correlation with high concentrations cannabinoid, cannabinoid, low concentrations THC to be effective for a lot of different things, but there are some specifics. So... Things like genetic testing is a new phenomenon that's happening a lot of a lot of the time. And what they'll do is, based off of your specific genetics, they're able to tell how much serotonin you have in your system or readily available serotonin you have in your system to come up with the ideal strain for you. That's where the current science is. Yeah, but it's not that effective. Like, it's not foolproof yet. Yeah, yeah so that's where we are. Great question. So, great question. Your liver, uh, so the question was, doesn't your liver break down most of the alcohol that you consume, so it doesn't matter if you're drinking or not? Or, relatively, okay. Um, so your, your liver does break down most of the alcohol that you consume, but your liver also has a half-life. So your liver is one of those organs that can regenerate, but you also have genes that will be able to dictate how long you can do that for. So on the end of every gene, there's something called a telomere. A telomere dictates exactly how long that gene will last until it burns out. So if I do the same repetitive behavior over and over and over again, right, that means that the gene is then saying I have to work really, really hard to be able to meet the demands that I'm putting into my body. But at one point or another, that gene will say, I'm done, I can't anymore, because it, it's reached that threshold. At that point, that's where things like cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma and liver failure start happening. So, uh, to a point, yes. But if you breach that point, then no. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Anyone else? Go ahead. Um, I would ask a funny question. Yes. Well, actually, they're related. So okay. <laughs> Is it true? Is it true that um, women doesn't schizophrenia show up later than men? Is that true or not? Would you know that answer? So off the top of my head, I remember it was um. No, I think it was cardinally around the same age. For a young adult population, it starts in the mid-20s, it'll start showing up. Schizophrenia starts showing up in the mid-20s, okay. and I think the latest, it's like 35 or something like that, I forget. I have to look at the books for that one. Um, yeah, good question, though. <laughs> Sorry, could you... I'm totally wrong, then. What was that again? <laughs> So, in a, there's a specific textbook that I'm trying to think about right now that was talking about um, schizophrenia in general, onset being mid-20s, latest um, appearance happens to be in mid-30s, but I didn't know it was specific like that. That's great. Thank you. Anyone else? Any other questions? Go ahead. I have something that's kind of not really related to what we were talking about, right? <laughs> 
So the question was, uh, I guess I'll broaden that to LSD and hallucinogens being trapped in your yeah. system. Because um, there's a rumor, a pervasive rumor about MDMA also being able to be stuck in your system. Yeah. Um, so there is factual information about that. So um, typically if we're using a specific drug, the drug typically goes into our fat cells. Uh, so it goes into our hair follicles and our fat cells. Those are the two main regions where it gets stored. Uh, when it comes to hallucinogens... Another region that it is stored is our spinal fluid. For some random reason, no idea why. Um, but LSD is one of those. Um, MDMA, ecstasy, um, all of them will affect your spinal fluid. And so there's been a history and report of um, individuals that would be cracking their spine or going to a chiropractor or something of that sort after using years ago. And for some reason, they would have an effect of lasting up to five minutes or so of feeling like they were having a euphoria based off of a similar experience of LSD or ecstasy <coughs> or any type of hallucinogen. That is a real thing. So is it like in your system like literally forever? I don't think it's forever, but it, it's probably for a long period of time. So like, I mean... Um, there was an article, that's random, that, uh, I just read this article about an individual that was applying for a job with the FBI, and um, on the application, that individual declared that they did have an experience with a hallucinogen specifically. The FBI then requested to do a spinal tap, and so they actually tested the spinal fluid to, to like ensure that it was only that one instance versus however long. They also did a hair follicle test. They were able to deduce that it was more than what she declared it was. Yeah, so that she wasn't able to get the gig. But that's what can happen. Yeah. Good. Um, is having a family history of bipolar disorders or schizophrenia, can that affect um, your reaction to certain drugs? It won't affect your reaction to certain drugs. Um, it wouldn't react, no, it wouldn't have an effect to how you react to certain drugs. What it would have an effect with was with regards to when you come off of that specific substance, how your mental health would be thereafter. So an individual using alcohol that is no family history of any type of mental health illness would still have an aftermath of depression or anxiety. But then an individual that had a history of schizophrenia or bipolar or anything like that might have more cyclical um, depression, anxiety fluctuations, or something of that sort. Anyone have any questions with regards to benzos? Benzodiazepine or enzyolytics? So, okay. If someone has anxiety, they want to take something that's going to reduce the anxiety, right? So pharmaceutical companies came up with these two grade medications that are able to reduce the amount of anxiety. They name them anxiolytics, right? That which splices anxiety, right? So um, when an individual is using either one of those substances uh, or any of those pharmaceutical medications, it's going to one specific region in your brain that's your temporal lobe, where the GABA-A and GABA-B receptors sit. It's the same region where alcohol affects it, okay? If you take a specific benzo, benzos 
backtrack. So alcohol is pretty much nonspecific. It binds to both GABA A and also GABA B, right? And that causes for sedation. And if someone was drinking a large amount of alcohol, that person will probably be really tired and they would end up falling asleep. If someone was taking a benzo or a barbiturate, it would affect your GABA B selectively. And that forces for sedation and, and anxiety reduction. Now there's a phenomenon of taking a benzo with alcohol, which would then force for spontaneous blackout. Um, so that's why it's extremely dangerous if anyone is having a benzo to also mix that with alcohol. It's written right there on the label. As you get it from the pharmacy, do not mix with alcohol. Um, for some reason, benzos, when they bind to that GABA B receptor, they also act as a magnet to alcohol, forcing for instantaneous blackout. Extremely dangerous stuff. Any other questions? Go ahead. So with things like coffee, is that more addiction or dependence? Depends. What's the difference, do we think? Oh, well, person. Both are depends <laughs> on the person? <laughs> I think that like, caffeine withdrawal is a very real thing. Like, I know that if I don't, like, if I, hold on. Don't laugh. <laughs> hold on. Um, it's not like I'm, like, drinking excessive amounts every day. Don't. Um, I, like, I experience headaches afterwards, if I, like, have a coffee, and then, like, the next couple of days, like, I don't, then I might experience headaches, so, like, I bet it's person to person, is that, like... It's a good... <laughs> 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 so, oh, I would agree with you. Um, I do think it's individualized, um, and there's an obscurity between, uh, like, Cross-use, use, addiction, dependence, and it's all to do with threshold. So, I mean, based off your physiologic ability to be able to process things and move things out of your system as fast as possible, um, there's definitely some sort of correlation between becoming an addictive person based off of the amount of consumption that you do, one specific thing over and over and over again. But... Um, it all depends on, I mean, the DSM and most psychologists would basically say if it's not affecting your daily functioning, it's probably not that big of a deal. Um, but it's something to always be mindful of, honestly. If you feel like it's starting to have an effect, if you're developing migraines every single day, it's probably something you might want to look at. Um, but coffee, as it sits on my desk, um, it's uh, a dehydrant. <laughs> it's a dehydrant, it's a stimulant, and um, without which you would absolutely develop things like migraines, headaches, um, sometimes nausea, you know, typical things. Go ahead. Um, like, what about, like, I know that, like, caffeine helps, like, I do have migraines, like, unrelated to caffeine, it's yeah. a family thing. Um, stop there, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, so what, what happens if, I mean, is there any specific thing that's, like, because I know that in the migraine med medication I take for it, there is caffeine yep. in there. So, like, is it just, like, an excess? Is it, like, what, what are the, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Absolutely. So, the question was about migraines and why most migraine medication happens to have a lot of ca caffeine in it. Yeah, that was the question. Sorry. So, 
Headaches and migraines are pretty much the aftermath of being dehydrated. So if you're not sleeping enough, for example, the main purpose of sleep is to replenish and hydrate your brain and come back to baseline, come back to homeostasis, right? So you have all those neurochemicals going back to specific regions. You have ample amounts of hydration so that all your brain cells are able to function and perform. If you take too much coffee, for example, if you take too much stimulants, or even if you're innately predisposed to having more migraines, that just means that your water levels might be a little bit lower at baseline than standard. Your neurochemicals aren't able to reach that homeostasis or that baseline too much. And so the reason that they prescribe a lot of caffeine is to increase blood flow. So caffeine is a main stimulant. It creates vasoconstriction. That vasoconstriction also increases your heart rate, so that creates more blood and vasculature to go to your brain and enhance that movement so that the, the migraine then will subside. Make sense? Yeah. Both of you. Oh, my Mm-hmm. And he said that if <laughs> <laughs> he said that if you get hypnotized, it would be like equivalent to like eight hours of sleep. Is that true? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, so true story. You're asking this to someone that practices hypnotherapy sometimes, and I've never seen that happen. I've never seen that happen. So. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, so, is like sugar addictive? Because I've like yes. hmm. I didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> so the question was, uh, is sugar addictive? Um, sugar happens to be one of the most addictive substances known to men, um, and there's a strong correlation between the dopaminergic serotonin reward pathway, the mesolimbic region, and they parallel it to heroin use, honestly. The one thing, the one substance that most heroin users, when they're trying to get sobriety, abuse is things like chocolate or any type of sugar. If you watch someone that's trying to go through recovery um, from an opiate, drink coffee, for example, you'll notice that their coffee is like 95% sugar and 5% coffee. Um, that's just a phenomenon of sugar. Same thing. I think we got time for one or two more questions. <laughs> Anybody in the back? <laughs> 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 Try to keep it together as we wrap up. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. No, 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 no. What, is this, what is your personal opinion on uh, like how cannabis is taking off? What is my personal opinion on how cannabis is taking off? Um, yeah. I think it can go in two directions, honestly. Um, <laughs> If, if the focus stays heavy on recreational use of high-grade THC marijuana, I think it's going to be catastrophic for society. Um, if it goes in a, in a direction of therapy and therapeutic models and higher-grade cannabinoids and really scientific evidence-based practice, I think it could be really great for society. Anyone else? All right, cool. Thanks for your time.